Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business show. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. Is your business to know about the law and how it's affecting every aspect of your life? Is your business to know about what's happening that's really important in the media front, particularly as it relates to the law? And so that's why I'm really excited about uh, John O'Connor joining our uh, media team here. Uh, he'll be doing uh, reoccurring commentaries on business, the law, the political front, and the media. And we're delighted to have him join us. Uh, he's distinguished in uh, the legal profession. Uh, he is an experienced trial lawyer practicing law in San Francisco since the early 70s. And he has tried cases in state and federal courts throughout the country. He served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California, representing the United States in both criminal and civil cases. But he may be best known for his work as the attorney of Mark Felt, whom most of you know as Deep Throat in the uh, Watergate uh, situation. And uh, he became very familiar with the role of the Washington Post in Watergate in his representation of Mark Felt. And so uh, he brings a lot of experience. He also wrote briefs regarding uh, Patty Hearst, the United States versus Patty Hearst, and really had himself involved in some of the biggest lawsuits of the uh, 20th century, representing the uh, federal government uh, in the vast majority of those cases. So we're delighted to have him. He's going to be bringing his interesting insights uh, every other week here on the Price of Business show. You can learn more about him and his work at postgatebook.com. That's postgatebook.com. And that's the name of uh, the, the book that uh, he talks about most often. It relates to media, Postgate. And again, that's postgatebook.com. All right, with that, John O'Connor. The Price of Business has asked me to discuss constructive dialogue in the new year. One of the biggest problems splitting our society today is the unwillingness of many to engage in constructive dialogue on critical issues which affect us all. This is especially true on the part of progressives who do not wish answers on or contradicting progressive doctrine. But there are many citizens today who vote with and for progressives and at least feel the need to pay lip service to their ideas, even if not fully embracing them. These people are, in my view, good-hearted, well-intentioned people of moderately liberal viewpoints. If people of moderately conservative sensibilities could develop constructive dialogue with these more center-left moderates, there could emerge constructive solutions to troubling issues as well as a society that is more respectful than the present society. So how can a moderately conservative person engage a moderately liberal voter? One of our most divisive issues today is that of climate change, because there are many who demand extreme solutions A respectful dialogue needs urgently to begin. Why is this issue of such compelling need for discussion? Today, we are all paying for climate change, perhaps more than we realize. This was deliberately caused by environmental activists who successfully limited derailing permits causing fossil fuel production to plummet and costs to rise. Our payments for all forms of transportation fuel have increased to about a billion dollars a day, which means about $1 trillion over three years. But pump prices are only part of the cost. The price of about every other common item is affected by the price of fossil fuel. Fossil fuel is needed for fertilizer and animal food. 
Steel needs massive amounts of coal, cement, extremely high energy input. Most hospital equipment is made of plastic based on fossil fuels or stainless steel implements requiring coal to coal. The cost of everything goes up with lowered production of fossil fuels. With increased inflation, soon the government's annual interest paid for T-bills will increase from $300 billion a year to $1.2 trillion. These amounts are only the indirect costs of climate change alarm. Direct subsidies and government requirements will cost trillions more. With this money being sucked out of our economy and no surplus fuel to sell cheaply to developing countries, the 3 billion people in the world who have no or insufficient electricity, that is, an amount equivalent to that necessary to run a refrigerator, they will continue to suffer. Infrastructure, clean water, and disease control will continue to be ignored for billions as a result of the cost of climate remedies in developed countries. But climate issues are with us whether we like it or not. So while this is a big set of questions for all of us, except for perhaps Dr. Nair, progressive climate alarmist, we should engage in a constructive and respectful dialogue. But isn't climate science settled? Therefore, we should refrain from discussing it. At least that's what extremists want. But let's very briefly talk of issues that are not settled, the resolution of which could mean we are throwing trillions down the drain and harming billions of people. What are these? One issue is whether thousands of years before fossil fuels became plentiful, there were other epochs in our history which, like today, there were increasing temperatures which reached peaks even higher than today's. If so, there should be nothing unusual or alarming about today's temperature. And if there were high increased temperatures not ostensibly caused by fossil fuel combustion, then maybe, indeed probably, present high temperatures are just another peak epoch having little to do with fossil fuels. When climate alarm began being widely pushed through Al Gore's inconvenient truths, the famous hockey stick graph of Michael Mann was featured, suggesting that temperatures and CO2 had remained stable until the Industrial Revolution, when they both shot up alarmingly. But Mann's graph famously left out what is called the medieval warming period. Greenland was actually green with farms throughout. Iceland was thriving and extensively settled. Trees were growing in North Sweden and in the Arctic Circle only recently uncovered as glaciers retreat. Leif Erikson discovered what we now know as Newfoundland, so warm that grapes grew, causing him to name it Vinland. Then the climate turned cold around 1250 AD, and Greenland froze over, engulfed by an advancing glacier. Virtually all of the settlers left Greenland, while Iceland lost most of its settlers. Needless to say, if there was this medieval warming period, without any unusual source of human warming, then it is certainly reasonably conceivable that our present period's warmth is naturally caused with only slight assistance from increased CO2. There appear to be other warming periods before the medieval times, most notably the Roman warming ending in 400 AD or so, coinciding with the fall of the empire. During that warming period, the trees bloomed near Hadrian's Wall, the border between Scotland and northern England. There were as well warming periods throughout the Holocene optimum between 7,000 and 4,000 BC, a warming period with various peaks and valleys, and as well a warming centering around 3,500 BC and one peaking around 1,500 BC. But for present purposes, let's stick to the medieval and Roman warming periods so well documented by written history. Those pushing for the extreme alarmist view of today's warming realize that widespread acceptance of these two warming periods means first that they have overemphasized the effects of carbon dioxide. Secondly, they also warn us of the terrible consequences of a cooling world, since the lower temperatures following these periods lead to a starving civilization, as crop yields often failed and yields decreased produce. So where is the intellectual battle lines drawn on this issue? 
A number of papers now claim that these warm periods may simply be localized phenomenon common to Western civilization. We don't know, they urge, about the rest of the globe. This is a polite argument in which we should all love to engage, since common sense suggests climate changes of this magnitude have global reach. If Attila the Hun was driven from Mongolia in 400 AD by increasing cold and droughts, and this cold reached to the Mediterranean, do we really think this is a local condition? Next respectful argument we could have is that of amplification. That is, what on paper should be a 1.1 degree centigrade rise if carbon dioxide doubles becomes a 3 degree, 4 degree, or 5 degree rise because of positive feedbacks. Positive feedback is the basis for today's alarm, but it is only a hypothesis. For purposes of this simple debate, we can assume all carbon dioxide over pre-industrial levels of 280 parts per million, now at 415 parts per million, comes from industrialization, including fossil fuels and perhaps heat islands of massive concrete and steel. But is there an argument that only part of the CO2 increase is man-made? Yes, historically, using ice cores and tree rings, it appears that increased heat has preceded increased CO2, suggesting that much atmospheric CO2 is caused by heat. But how? Several papers, including a key 2007 paper by Dr. Courtney, shows that the ocean, a great repository of carbon dioxide, releases carbon dioxide when it warms. If so, then game, set, and match against the alarmist view. But let us assume, as most have, that all increased carbon dioxide is man-made. On paper, an increase doubling the carbon dioxide calculates to cause an increase of about 1.1 degree centigrade without negative or positive feedbacks, or better put, amplification. Recent increases in carbon dioxide, of course, are not doubled, but only about 50%. So what is the mechanism hypothesized amplifying this modest increase, which the Paris Accords confirm is not harmful? A hotter atmosphere holds more water, we all know. And if this causes high trapping cirrus clouds, there should be some, underlying some, amplification. This is the mechanism simply proposed for alarmist global warming. But if, for example, the increased water in the atmosphere causes an increase in lower stratocumulus clouds, the effect would be cooling or negative feedback as sunlight reflects off these clouds and does not reach the earth as much as otherwise. Or alternatively, the shape and consistency of clouds can change so that the amount of heat escaping stays constant or increasing, defeating any amplification. But don't all the thousands of researchers trying to prove global warming have an answer to this? No, not at all. If we dig into the scientific literature, it is clear, and let me emphasize this, water vapor and cloud formation are very poorly understood and the papers admit that. Let that sink in because if such is poorly understood, the global warming hypothesis is poorly understood. Are we destroying our world over a mechanism poorly understood? Now, when we view the wide range of alarmist predictions of warming effect ranging from 1.5 degrees to 5 degrees, we can easily understand that these figures are just guesses without precision to them. If they are largely speculative, should we upend our world economies on that basis? I'm not trying to resolve the argument here, but simply suggest that people of goodwill and rationalities should have dialogue about these issues, which non-scientists can easily access through internet research of scientific papers. Our own Western civilization and that of the developing are hanging in the balance. Should we in Western societies become willing economic vassals of China and India, who do not buy the remedies sought.
finally, we should all educate ourselves on the prospects for our planet if we do everything we are asked. As the world's perhaps most respected climate economist Bjorn Lomberg shows, spending trillions and trillions through 2100 under the unlikely assumption that India and China join the Western world, we can avoid at most a 0.4 degree rise in heating that it would otherwise have occurred. Is this modest effect worth many trillions? Is it worth leaving the undeveloped world in poverty? His writings, which incorporate the economic research of others, suggest that we really have little or no ability to influence climate, even with massive trillions in spending. President Biden's climate czar, Gina McCarthy, for these very reasons, advocates for the suppression of any speech about the costs and benefits of climate remedies. And no wonder. As the new year begins, let us all endeavor to discuss and debate these important issues in a respectful and even tone. Then we will determine what kind of world we have and we leave for future generations.